Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, October 11th, 2020, and this is show number 805. Well, we're recording from San Diego this week, as Steve and I have been spending some quality time with Nolan and Lindsay in the glorious Forbes and Sienna. You missed a big excitement here on the live show. We had Forbes singing the alphabet song during the pre-show. I mean, you know, it doesn't get any better than that, right? Anyway, I did manage to work in some time to paint the guest bathroom while I was down here, which I'm very, very proud of. And uh, But we're going to have a great show. You will notice a difference in my mic, but the quality of the work did not suffer. When you listen to Security Bits, you might hear some bumping here. Steve figured out what I was doing. I had my uh, travel mic, the tripod, sitting up on the laptop, and the laptop hard on a desk. And I think every time I was typing or moving the uh, cursor, anything I was doing touching the Mac was coming through that. So you will hear a little bit of bumpiness here and there, but it's mostly bar talking. So nobody cares what I have to say during that part anyway. Well, this week's Chit Chat Across the Pond is Bart Bouchot's back with Programming by Stealth, episode 103 of X, and we're going through getting started with Git. And I'm proud to say that this is our five-year anniversary of Programming by Stealth. Five years we've been doing HTML and CSS and JavaScript and now Git, and we're going to go on to PHP, and uh, I man, I'm just having a heck of a ride with this. I really love Programming by Stealth. But let's get back to Git and what we talked about. After some quick revision from the previous episode, Bart explains how Git commands work with their subcommands. We start by looking at how to configure Git and the differences between local, global, and system-level settings. Then we create our very first repo with an exciting readme file, and we commit the file to our repo, all from the command line. It's a fairly simple lesson while laying down a good foundation for all future work. If you've been looking for a good time to jump into programming by stealth, like you feel like you're watching a bunch of people playing jump rope and you don't know when the time to jump in, now is a great time to jump in because we're getting started with version control and Git, and this is applicable to lots of different things. For example, the Taming the Terminal book was all done using Git for version control. So now's a great time to jump in. You can find the show notes for this installment at uh, Programming My Stealth, episode 103 at, Bartif- uh, let's see, pbs.bartificer.net. And of course, there's a link in the show notes. It's time for another tiny tip. In September, I talked to you about how I organize my photos and how I apply this detailed and fastidious organization method, even when bringing in scanned photos. One thing I didn't tell you about is that I also name a lot of my photos. I do this because I really like to be able to just on the fly type in Windride and find photos of my family's boat from when I was a little girl or bat and find the amazing bat costume my father made for my brother Grant when he was a child. Naming photos on macOS in the Photos app is pretty tedious. First, you need to figure out how to see the title field, which is where the name needs to go. One way to view the title field is to tap the little I in a circle in the menu bar to open the Info button, or you could hold down Command-I to get the same window to pop up. This will reveal all of the EXIF data about the photo, like the camera, make and model, ISO, focal length, all that kind of stuff about the image, and any geotagging you've done. But it also reveals a field that says, add a title. If you click in the field and type in your title, 
So far, so good. Now you want to type in the title for the next photo. You have to let go of the keyboard, go to your trackpad or mouse, click on the next picture, then click back into the title field again and type in the next name. Now you think maybe you could hit the tab key to jump from photo to photo or leave your cursor in the title field, but no. You have to do this whole dance, letting go of the keyboard, using the mouse or trackpad. It's, it's awful. Now, you don't have to open the info window to see and edit the title field on your images. That's the first way. But you can turn on titles so they're visible right underneath the image. In the view menu, you can choose metadata, and one of the options is to see the titles. You can even toggle titles on with the keystroke Command-Shift-T. But don't be dismayed if you try this and the titles do not show up under the images. By default, Apple doesn't display your images in the aspect ratio in which they were taken. They're displayed as squares instead. There's a lot more, if it's, it's actually a lot more efficient way to view photos, but you can toggle the title on and off till your trackpad wears out, and those titles are never going to show up. The other metadata you can toggle on, such as file type, whether it has a keyword, and location, all display their icons right on the image itself, so those toggles do work in this square thumbnail view. But the squares never move apart to make room for the title below each one. We need to first change this view to be the original aspect ratio rather than these squares. Now you can hunt all day through the menus for how to change from square images to the true aspect ratios, and you're never going to be able to find it. It's not even in preferences. Instead of in, the, instead of in the view menu where it would logically be available, it's a physical toggle button on the photos window. The toggle is in the upper left corner next to the red, yellow, green, you know, stoplight buttons. And the toggle looks like a square with an upward and downward chevron inside it. <laughs> That's helpful. Anyway, if you hover over it, it should show, say, show thumbnails as square or in full aspect ratio. Once you've toggled the full aspect ratio, you will finally be able to see the titles you enabled in the View Metadata menu. Each image will have a small title area underneath it, which will be pre-populated by the image name, such as, you know, img underscore 5390.heic. This pre-populated uh, field allows exported images to have unique names identical to the original name as the image was created. Now, you've finally got this field visible and you put in a title for an image, wouldn't it be swell if hitting tab took you to the next image's title field? <laughs> Aren't you adorable hoping for that? Nope, you cannot do that. The first time you hit tab, it moves from the title field to the image itself. You hit tab again, and the photos library menu in the left sidebar lights up. I don't know why. If you hit tab again, for no reason I can discern, the cursor jumps to the search field. Hit it one more time, and it selects the single image again. It never advances to the next image. I don't know why you would want any of those things to happen when you hit the tab. This poor design decision means that even in this view, after typing in the title on one image, you have to move your hands from the keyboard and tap in the title field of the next image. Drives me nuts. It's so inefficient. But at least you can add titles to your images in Apple Photos on the Mac. Now, I spend a lot of my time on an iPad. And the only thing more aggravating than how inefficient it is to entitle photos on the Mac is that you can't do it at all on an iPad. If we state the problem to be solved more precisely than I have already, in iOS and iPadOS 14, there is a way to meet my objective. 
My need is not actually to have titles added to my images. My need is to be able to find my images by some sort of name. Now, you might be saying, keywords, Allison, you should use keywords, but that's not going to work for me. The words I need to add are often unique, like bat or windride, so a keywording system wouldn't be the right solution. And iPadOS Photos doesn't have keywording anyway, so that wouldn't help me. So if I can demonstrate a way to type in a search term entered in iOS or iPadOS and photos in any of the operating systems can find that image via search, then I will declare victory. In iOS, iPadOS 14 photos, if you swipe up on an image, it will reveal several things. If it recognizes a face, it will show you the people bubble, and it will show the map if the image has any geolocation and any nearby photos. If the image is a live photo, you get the fun options of making a bounce, long exposure, or loop of the image's embedded video. I bet you thought that would happen if you tried to edit a live photo, right? Nope, it's not in there. I looked for it all afternoon yesterday. It's down in here, so you swipe up on the image, and that's where you get those options. But right under the image itself, when you swipe up, is where the magic is going to happen. It says, add a caption, and it's got the little text field there. I typed in a caption using my iPad for an image and excitedly switched over to Photos on the Mac, only to discover that there is no caption field on the Mac version of Photos. However, there is a field called Description. It turns out the caption from iOS or iPadOS photos was delivered to me over on the Mac in the description field. Clearly, the developers of the iOS photos and macOS photos work on opposite sides of the spaceship because they never even noticed they named the same field two different names. However, the most important thing is that now on the Mac or on iPad or iPhone, you can search by the words you typed into the caption or description field and you more important and even more importantly it finds the images with those words on all three platforms now i'm sure some of you are already pointing out that if anything the process of swiping up on a photo typing in a caption swiping down then swiping right to left to get to the next photo and then up and tapping in the caption field to type in the second caption is even more annoying than the process on a mac and you'd be right but at least you can kick back on the couch with an iPad and name photos when relaxing instead of having to use a Mac. On vacation, you may only have your iPad with you and you want to name your photos while you can still remember the name of a mountain or which kind of goat you just saw. I know this improvement isn't groundbreaking for most people, but it makes me really happy that I can name or wait, title, no, caption, describe, I don't know. I can find my files that I've named using my iPad. So you guys hear me talk all the time about Pat Dangler, also known as Your Mac Doctor. She's always the one I turn to uh, for help, like the time I set a magnet down on my brand new laptop, literally the day I bought it. Uh, she's who I called, and she is here with us today. Say hello to the audience there, Pat. Hello, audience. <laughs> um, so what happens all the time is Pat gets some cool gadget or some nifty piece of software and we get on the phone and she tells me all about it. And I think, man, that would be a great interview. And then we've tried to record after the fact and the organicness is completely lost and it doesn't work. So this time she sent me a, a quick video and a photo of a new gadget that she has. And I said, no, we're not going to talk about it. I'm going to turn on the recorder first to hear it. So now the pressure's on that this has to be amazing, Pat. 
Oh, gosh. (laughs) (laughs) So let's start first with the problem to be solved. The problem to be solved is that I have blinds in my house, and I have to walk like an animal, as they say, and touch the blind and twist the little twisty thing and open them and close them by hand. And the twisty thing goes backwards 100% of the time, right? If you turn it one way, it does the opposite of what you wanted, right? Oh, yeah, exactly. There's a there's always a, a half twist one way and then the rest of the twist in the other direction. I uh, I actually have a theory about that. So mine have the twisty thing and they have the two pull cordy thing. And I am convinced that the person who invented USB-A invented that because 100 <laughs> percent of the time, both of them are backwards. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so you solved this problem uh, quite a while ago with something from Ikea, actually, right? Well, uh, the problem in that case was my living room windows, which didn't have blinds, and oh. I would have to physically, uh, you know, pull open and close the the curtains. What do you, the fabric shades, the <laughs> curtains, right? We're such girly um, girls. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, and uh, and. I heard about IKEA having their home kit version of the shades available in Europe, and then they were going to come to the United States, and I was very, very excited, and it was like Christmas could not come soon enough, not literally, but figuratively. Um, So I finally got them, and life has been miraculous ever since, because I have that in-home kit, and they're on a schedule. I have a good evening scene, a good morning scene, and... Um, they go up and down automatically. And if I happen to watch a movie during the day or when there's still sunlight out, I can close the blinds in uh, in the living room, either using the S lady or a button or my phone, all making me very happy. So those are HomeKit compatible? Or are yes. not? Yeah, they are. Okay. Yeah, they are. Via, uh, I think. Boy, I'd have to check now. I've played with Hoobs for so many things that I can't remember what's HomeKit native and what is HomeKit through Hoobs. Right, uh, but you've right. talked about Hoobs, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you're you're kind of one of the ones that got me the nerve to do it because we did we played with it on uh, or played with um, uh, what's it called Homebridge Homebridge on your Homebridge, Raspberry yeah. Pi quite a while ago. Right. Okay. Right. So these are these so are. The, oh, go ahead. Well, the the last problem in that whole watching a movie during the day are the blinds in my dining room because they face the television. Mm -hmm. And so the light would come in and lots of glare and so on. So those are the ones that usually I just leave them open 24 hours a day. They're usually open because I just, yeah, I just don't want to get up and close them at night and open them in the morning. So, but the movie thing is a big deal. So uh, if you're happy with the Ikea ones, because we are actually not here to talk about the IKEA ones. We're here to talk about a new a new set. How well, how did this uh, new set come along? So I had uh, the, what do they call those? The louvered blinds? Right. That go up and down. Those were already in the dining room. In the living room, I didn't have anything. I just oh. had the fabric. Oh, okay. So, that's so the thing you got from IKEA yeah, was, was the full, was blinds or was curtains? What was it? Shades. Oh, shades. Yeah. Sorry, that are, that I, are mostly mostly blackout. Okay, sorry. Okay, I, I talked over you a little bit. What she was saying that I talked over, we're having Skype here, uh, was that she has uh, uh, blinds, no, has shades, which is different. The, the shades. IKEA thing was shades. Gotcha. Okay. 
but it but it will it will come into the conversation in the, in a minute as well. Okay, so the ones in the in not the dining. Those, sorry, not not those in particular, not the IKEA ones, but uh, manual shades that you have a chain or a right loop to to pull them up and roll them down. Right. Okay, so you've got these uh, regular blinds now, the the kind where you mm-hmm. swivel them in the uh, in the yes. dining room. And what did you get? So I uh, found a device through my research on YouTube for HomeKit-related things, um, a fellow by the name of Shane Watley, who does a lot of HomeKit stuff. You can search his name out on YouTube. His last name is spelled W-H-A-T-L-E-Y. And uh, he demoed uh, about a year and a half ago these Soma Smart or Soma Tilt that's what it's called is a Soma tilt. And the problem that it solved is that you can find multiple solutions for the tilting blinds that use the, the loop, right? A round mm-hmm. loop to pull them open and closed. But you could not find one for the blinds that use the stick to twist. Oh. Right? Okay. So what, this, what the Soma device does is it's a small white box it's two inches by two and a half inches by three inches and it's got a good bit of heft to it but that box has a little tail that comes out essentially they call it a cable but if you look at it it's it's more like a wound up tail covered in a a nice nicely covered in a, a white plastic and on the end of it it's got a little adapter and they send it to you with three adapters depending on the hook that your stick uses because some of them are tiny, oh. some of them. Are tiny. So you change that little end piece and have it fit on your hook. And then that so you little get t- rid of the stick. You get rid of the stick. Okay. You attach this motorized tail to it and the tail spins oh. and therefore tilting your blinds. Huh? Those sticks yeah. are ugly anyway. <laughs> exactly. Well, now there's a white box that's stuck to the side of my window, but I'm okay with that. Yeah. Because I don't have to get up and walk over there and manually open and close them. You know, now that you mention it, I was just looking at my own uh, curtain sort of thingies. I don't know what they're called, hanging behind me because I'm just not vertical the kind of girl to know. Yeah, vertical blinds. That's it. But I realized our, our bedroom ones are the kind of blinds you're talking about where they're louvered and they've got the stick. And 100% of the time I rotate it backwards. This works for vertical blinds as well. You just mm. need either the chain, in which case you would buy their Soma Smart Shades 2 device, or if you had a stick, then you would buy the Soma Tilt 2. Okay. Um, and they all come with a small, approximately 8 inches by 2 inches uh, solar panel that you can stick to the window. Oh. So. I pre-charged mine. It comes with a USB cable to charge it. But um, the little uh, solar panel seems to be good because I checked the battery and it's 100% still and it's been running for a day and a half now. Okay. So if you don't have sun there, you just plug it into a little power source every once in a while? Yeah, they give you a little um, wall plug, wall adapter, and then a you know, you'd have to have a long enough reach, obviously, to to get up to the to the de- close enough to the device itself. Um, but I'm not sure how long the battery would last. 
because uh, mine is plugged to the solar, so it's 100% still. Okay. Um, so I do want to say, Steve and I got the uh, Gear Axis Smart Shade Controller after we interviewed them uh, uh, at CES, and it is not... Um, it is not HomeKit compatible, but I have to tell you, every night at seven o'clock, Steve and I go, wait, wait, listen, listen, and you hear, and it's closing the blinds, and it just, the vertical blinds, and it makes him so deliriously happy that he doesn't have to go close them at night and open them in the morning, and close them at night and open them in the morning. Um, so I do know that that lack of annoyance is, for some reason, just life-changing, right? Oh, it's delightful. I, I sat here this morning and I, I have it set to, to go up somewhere around sunrise. Um, my shades go up and my porch lights go off and these blinds open up. And sure enough, as I was sitting here drinking my tea, they all did their dance right in oh. front of me. And it was very pleasing. <laughs> yeah. So HomeKit compatible. That's awesome. Right. Well, so that's the asterisk. Uh-oh. So you, yeah, well, they sell, in addition to uh, the Tilt, they sell something called the Soma Connect. And by installing that, that will get you your HomeKit compatibility. So and it's a bridge? really what that is, well, it's actually a Raspberry Pi. <laughs> it's, it's a repackaged Raspberry Pi. It's got the SD card and the whole nine yards and four USB ports and, and all of that. But you connect it to your network. You open up the app on your phone and you touch your phone against this device and it miraculously pairs into your phone, the app in your phone. And then you have a generic HomeKit code, uh, which I've seen use the exact same one for the WiseCam setup to get that into HomeKit. Um, and Bob's your uncle. Your shades are in HomeKit. Wow. So that wasn't using any hoob stuff, though. No, it was not. It was its own whatever programming they have in there. Okay, cool. Uh, just to make sure nobody misunderstands, um, the Wisecams are not HomeKit compatible. Yeah, you, if right. you could do them through hoops, if you flash the firmware and that sort of thing. Exactly. Which and Ed Tobias has done and said worked great. Um, I am in the middle of trying to do that. Okay. So I haven't I haven't tried it yet, but I'm I'm researching it. Um, interestingly, they do advertise on the box very specifically. I'm stalling here for time because it did vamping. say HomeKit. <laughs> I'm vamping. That's it. Um, no, I was wrong. It actually does not say HomeKit on the box. Oh, yes, it does. There we go. Smart Shades. Control your Smart Shades with Amazon Alexa and Apple HomeKit, um, but it's not official. Not official. Cause, well, because it doesn't have it doesn't have the HomeKit code. You have oh. to use their own Raspberry Pi to do this. Huh. I think they're they're working towards official HomeKit, is my understanding. But how, but how is the Raspberry Pi doing it? If it's not official, I haven't looked. But one one of my on my to do list is to pull out that little SD card and see if I can see what's on there. <laughs> I'm I'm imagining it's their own their their uh, iteration of HomeBridge. Huh. Oh, well, that would be an interesting solution, wouldn't it? Yep. That's really interesting. Okay, so how much is it worth to everyone to have their blinds 
open and close with their scene in the morning while they're sipping their tea? <laughs> so each device that manipulates your blinds or shades, and they do have it for roller shades and for blinds and all kinds of stuff. Um, those are, they're on sale for $119. And that might be the regular, like it might always be on sale. Um, the Soma Connect, which is their their quote unquote bridge to home kit is forty nine dollars. Hmm. So but you only have to buy one, one of bridge, those. Yeah, you only need one of those, but you need one of the hundred and twenty dollar devices for each window <clears throat> that you want to set up. So I'm looking to see. Yeah, the Axis Gear. Just so people have a frame of reference, the Axis Gear that we bought in February of 2019 was two hundred and fifty dollars, and it does one one window. And it can only do the loop kind. So uh, 119, I could get two windows done for that price. Yeah, their regular price is $149. It says save 20%, and they offer free international shipping. Really? Oh, that's cool. Yep. They came from Estonia, I think. I'd have to verify that, but when I was tracking, um, I believe that's where it originated from. And wow. they just came out on the website. It doesn't say Soma Tilt 2, but they just came out with a Soma Tilt 2. So I would, uh, if you were going to buy that, I would clarify. And I have an email into them. I haven't heard back yet. Um, if whatever's on the website would ship as the two. Oh, okay. Uh, and so the Soma Smart Shades 2 is already out. So the there's the Tilt and the Smart Shades Yes. Okay. Well, this is very cool. Uh, what's the uh, what's the website for this place? SomaSmartHome.com. SomaSmartHome.com. There it is. It That's comes up after I write SomaSmart. S-O-M-A. Soma. Well, very cool, Pat. This was fun. Yeah. Hey, this totally did work. This is, by the way, guys, this is what like Friday night sounds like when we get together, right? This is all we do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The only thing we're missing is the gin, I think. I think so. Uh, we took care of that a little earlier tonight. Uh, if people live in the Los Angeles area, Pat is a certified Apple consultant. Um, I recommend her to everybody. Um, I especially recommend her to women who don't want to be mansplained to. Um, if you are in the Los Angeles, I mean, she doesn't mansplain to the men either, probably, but, uh, just, uh, somebody who's patient never makes you feel stupid, no matter how dumb you are when you put a magnet down on your laptop, uh, she'll, she'll be there for you and they can find you where, uh, Pat at Dangler Consulting, my phone numbers, I can even give that to you, right? 424-644-6654. Right now, the website is down, but it's DanglerConsulting.com when it is up. And that's Dangler, D-E-N is in Denmark, G-L-E-R. Very good. All right, Pat, thanks for coming on. This was very cool. Thanks, Allison. It was fun. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchats. Jeez, it feels like you were here just last week, Bart. I was going to say it's only yesterday, but not quite yesterday. But <laughs> close enough. Close enough. They're not the world's longest show notes. I think my scroll bar is a th half the size of my screen, which is very unusual. 
Oh, well, there we go. So did the internet do enough to entertain us, though, for the week? I think it did, actually. Um, But it won't be the world's longest security bits. We won't go for an hour this time. Okay. Uh, First up, we visit uh, social media update world. Facebook has decided to ban QAnon across all of its platforms. Good. So so QAnon is basically the king of conspiracy theories, right? It's conspiracy theory meets cult religion. It, like, it is it is unique and special. I've listened to quite a few podcasts on the psychology of QAnon. It is, it is half religion, half traditional conspiracy theory, and extremely distressing. Like, it's scary, scary stuff. So very good. To, uh, you know, Facebook is just so quick to fix these problems. It's yeah. impressive, isn't it? <laughs> Meanwhile, Instagram turned 10. And on the occasion of their 10th birthday, they released a small improvement to their anti-bullying protections. Not earth-shattering, but it's a little bit better. So details in their blog post. So bordering on two good Facebook stories. I mean, they're not bad. (laughs) They don't change the world, but they're steps in the right direction. So yeah, I'll take it. There we go. Uh, Meanwhile, we did a deep dive last time into the T2 jailbreak. And at the time, I was very careful to say that at the moment, there do not appear to be any security implications. And at that moment, that was it. That was true. However, a week has passed and a lot can change in a week. So uh, the other shoe has dropped very much so. So the jailbreakers were interested in what jailbreakers were interested in. But once the jailbreakers had done their jailbreaking, the security researchers went to town and they have very different interests. They don't want to run Quake on the uh, touch bar, which is what someone managed to do. They managed to boot it into Linux. They managed to boot the touch bar into Linux to play a game of Quake (laughs) because that's what you do. That's cool though. I'll grant you it is cool. It's like up there with the virus that went around looking for HP printers and when it infected them, it played Quake on the little LCD panels on the HP printers. So (laughs) So that's what you do is you play Quake. That's what you do, yeah. So do it just uh, 30 seconds. What was the the T2 um, chip jailbreak from last week? So the T2 chip is based, It's a so a T2 chip is basically an A10, I think it is, processor, running a special operating system that's not iOS, and its job is to do what the, the basically, Touch ID, Secure Enclave, Secure Boot, um, it does Find My, uh, Activation Lock, and if okay. you have a, a touch bar, it also manages the touch bar. So you can have a okay. T2 chip and not have a touch bar, so it does all the other things. But if you have a touch bar, it does that as well. Okay. And because it's because it's an A10, it was vulnerable to the same jailbreak, the check range jailbreak, that affects all iPhones older than, I think, the iPhone 11 or something like that. Okay. Uh, and because the vulnerability in that... Um, uh, in in that chip is is at a low chip level, it can't be fixed. So it's an unpatchable vulnerability in those old iPhones that allows them to be jailbroken. And that same vulnerability exists on these T2 chips. Okay. So initially when the... So it allows the attacker to get in and start messing around with the operating system on the T2 chip, which initially was done for the purpose of fun. But of course, that T2 chip has important work to do apart from the touch bar. And if you can mess around with the touch bar, can you mess around with the other stuff? And the answer is yes, but not all of it. 
So it's not a calamity, but it is quite serious. So probably in my mind, in terms of the average person, in, in terms of our listener, as opposed to a freedom fighter in China or something, in terms of regular folk, the biggest thing here is a bypass of activation lock. So before now, if you had a Mac with a T2 chip and you locked it using Find My iPhone, it was like your iPhone. It wouldn't boot again. So the person who stole your laptop couldn't use it and you could remote wipe it, etc. Which is very important to corporate environment. Now, if someone steals your T2, so if someone steals your Mac that doesn't have a T2 chip, they can just use it anyway. So in in some regards, this just makes the T2 laptops no more secure than every Mac we've ever owned up until now. Okay, right, right. Now, if someone steals a T2 protected Mac and you lock it using Find My, if the attacker is smart enough, they can bypass that lock. After you've after you've uh, locked it, yes, because they oh. so the the T2 chip's job is to step in before the machine boots and apply a whole bunch of rules, one of which is the activation lock rule. But if you can control the operating system running in the T2, well, you just tell it not to bother with that bit. Skip that line of code. Okay, what if what if I've got um, uh, file encryption file vault turned on? Bear with me for one more point, and then we will address okay. that, because that is a very important point. Okay. Um, so bypassing activation lock is, to me, very important uh, for regular folks. It's annoying, but it means that the T2-protected Macs lose a protection that was really valuable. Uh, mm-hmm. It also means that your firmware password is as bypassable as firmware passwords used to be before the T2 chip existed, which basically meant there was always a way to, if you had physical access, you could always get around a firmware password. Um, it was a matter of resetting the BIOS in a certain way, and you could always get around them. So we're back to that reality now with the T2 bypass. And then we get on to the big question, what about file encryption? Now, it's very important to know that the T2 chip contains a separate chip that is the secure enclave. And the secure enclave is a hardware-implemented one-way valve. You cannot pull secrets out of a secure enclave by design. Right, right. And that means that even though they have control of the T2, the hardware secure enclave is still every bit as protected as it was before. Okay. So they cannot directly decrypt your drive. However, they can, they do have full control over the EFI firmware. So they can add a keylogger. So the next time you boot your Mac, you type your password in, and the, the the EFI, the what we'll call BIOS, even though it isn't BIOS because that's a it's EFI these days. But anyway, we call it the BIOS. The BIOS has a keylogger in it, and the BIOS steals your password and sends it back to attacker, and then the attacker can decrypt your drive at leisure. Okay, so that that means that I've got to lose control of my laptop while they uh, break th- into the T two chip, put a um, put a keylogger into the EFI. Then I have to regain access to my laptop, yes. type in my uh, my login password. Yes. And then they and can then... get out your stuff. It would phone home because remember, the, EF, the, the, the EFI can uh, restore your Mac over the network and stuff. So the EFI has network access. Oh, so they wouldn't have to again get access. Correct. It could phone home. Oh, okay. And it could be sitting there while you're using access. Basically, you could be using your Mac and at the same time, the chip is stealing all of your data. Okay. 
So, I mean, so I, I'm confused by one thing, and I, I should have probably asked you this like 12 years ago when you told us about File Vault. So I don't ever type in my File Vault key. Correct. You type in a password. I type in my login to my to my Mac. Right. So how does okay. that get them into File Vault? Uh, okay, so it would not be practical for human beings to remember the actual massive key that locks any file system, and that's true not just of File Vault. That's true of the of the ones we've had for years before. So it's a two-step right. process. Your password encrypts the key that encrypts your drive. Okay. And so if you change your password, you already have the key in plain text because your Mac is booted. So when you change your password, you re-encrypt the key with your new password. And then okay. the actual key on the drive doesn't have to change. Okay. So they don't have to get me to type that the encryption key. Correct. They only have to get me to type my my password to get into the computer. Correct, because they can do the same thing then and use the password to decrypt the key to decrypt the drive. Okay, so when I type in one two three four, to unlock that's obviously my your Mac, password. <laughs> open one two three. Open one two three. Sorry, yeah, because I'm I'm elite. Yeah. <laughs> and the E is a three, so there you there go. go. Um. So, so that's not good. It's not good. The other possibility, this is entirely hypothetical for now, is that it's hard to to brute force a, a, a file vault password because the T2 chip is time limiting you. It is theorized mm -hmm. that you can probably remove the time limit and so you could brute force more quickly. Um. But again, that entirely, that then puts it back to having a decent password. So if you have a terrible password, even now with the time limiting, your terrible password will probably stand up for weeks or months. If there is a way to get by the time limiting, then your terrible password would only stand up for half an hour or something. But a good password will stand up for the age of the universe. So the laws of physics still apply. Right, right. So then it gets down to you have to use a good password for your Mac. But that's hypothetical at the moment. No one's proved that yet. So the okay. thing to bear in mind here is this kind of vulnerability is very much perfect for the evil maid attack so you go to a hotel you go down for breakfast the someone pays the maid to come in with a thumb drive that's not really a thumb drive they shove it into the side of your device it takes over your t2 chip they plug it out they walk away they be very careful to put everything back just the way it was and then you come in you power up your laptop to finish your powerpoint presentation for that afternoon or whatever and hey presto now the the bad guys have all of your keys so, so with just sticking a thumb drive, they can they can crack the into the T two. It wouldn't be an actual thumb drive. It would be a USB device created by the attackers that would be no, that would not need to be. In fact, it could be hidden as they could. Someone could give you a free cable that's actually a hacking device. Would be another way to do it. Right, but uh, so they don't have to do any coding to cause this this crack or that's well they would in, have that done in advance in. right so you plug the device in and it does its thing so they would have done their work in okay. advance to make the attack tool okay um and i mean that kind of thing has been done for years with these kind of evil made attacks so it's just a little device like a pony plug is a is, a, is one that's used by white hat hackers when they're pen doing penetration tests so it's called a pony plug okay. because it pones things ha 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 uh, it, it's an like open source it. Linux mini computer running on a little thumb drive sized device. And so you would shove it into a Windows machine and it would just try a whole bunch of known Windows exploits. And if the Windows machine wasn't patched, hey, presto, they get in. But you can program them to do anything. So those kind of devices exist. So, you know, if you're sophisticated enough to be going after someone important, you could certainly have a device to give to someone whom you pay off in some way to 
stick it in for 15 seconds or whatever. So okay. that's very plausible. But again, that only works because you then continue to use your own computer. So what this doesn't help with is if someone steals your computer, yes, they can bypass activation lock and they could reinstall the OS and put their stuff on it. But they have no way to get at your stuff. Without keylogging you. Right, but they've stolen your laptop. Right, right. So you're still protected from theft in that way. So you haven't lost the fact that if someone steals your laptop, your stuff is still safe. They haven't got your, okay. they, they have your physical stuff, but they haven't got your digital life. So you're and still you better off. And you can't erase it, but they can't get to it either. Exactly, exactly. So okay. you're, that's why it's not sky is falling. And uh, mm-hmm. also if, uh, you know, you're, you're crossing borders or whatever, and your device is seized from you and you don't cooperate, they can't get your stuff. But if they very right, surreptitiously right. crack it and hand it back to you, then you may accidentally give you, give them your stuff. Uh, the other big thing that uh, the T2 chip is supposed to do is implement secure boot and so the concept of secure boot is that everything is digitally signed these days so for your Mac to boot if it has a T2 chip the operating system has to be digitally signed by Apple and because the T2 chip is alive before the boot process it can supervise every step of the way and make sure that the version of macOS you're booting has not been altered since it left Cupertino. There isn't a backdoor injected into it. There isn't some sort of keylogger injected into it, right? It's verifying via digital signatures that the OS you're booting is the way Apple made it, and no third party has booby-trapped it in any way. But that's the T2 chip doing that. So if you control the T2 chip, you can simply ignore signature mismatches. Or you can be proactively evil and inject your own malicious code into Mac OS X, sorry, into Mac OS as it boots up. And then give it back? Well, just basically, you can alter Mac OS at boot time because you, you, the T2 chip, are more powerful than the operating system. So you can actually, right. you can have it so that on disk, the operating system is unchanged from Apple. But in memory, it's completely corrupted with your malware because as it was booting, you're injecting stuff, which means that a virus scanner scanning your disk would see nothing wrong. You'd boot up and you'd be completely hacked. And you'd take the drive out and virus scan it and it would be perfect. And you'd boot up mm. and it'd be completely hacked. And you'd take someone else's drive and you'd reinstall Mac OS and every time you'd be completely hacked because it's actually the T2 chip that's injecting the malware as it boots your machine, which is particularly evil and vicious. So how would that benefit an uh, evil person? Well, you wouldn't notice anything had gone wrong, of course, unless you were very, very, oh, okay. very proactive about it. So they could then add any sort of backdoor they wanted into your Mac. So they could add a, the okay. back, a reverse shell so they could access your Mac, or they could simply add a keylogger, or they could add some code to find files of a certain type and exfiltrate them. To just basically behind your back go looking for anything called, you know, mysupersecrets.doc, and that's, you know, obviously a little more sophisticated, but you get the idea, right? Right. So again, uh, trying to find the slight hint of optimism here is that this is no less secure than a Mac without a T2 chip. It's not like, oh, this is bad to have a T2 chip. Correct, exactly. So at all points in this process, the, the the T2 continues to give you the secure enclave, which is not compromised. So a Mac with a broken T2 is a little bit more secure than a Mac without a T2. Okay. 
and a Mac without a T2. So even now with the T2 as compromised as it is, it's still slightly better than what we've had for all the rest of our lives. So this hasn't made anything worse than what we had before the T2. It's just the T2 has lost its teeth. The T2 used to be super great, and now the T2 is like, yeah, small extra. And the fact that it enables Touch ID because it has a secure enclave, I would say from a usability point of view, is a pretty big extra. And it encourages better security because you can have a secure password without hating yourself. So on the whole, (laughs) it's still... Having a T2 chip is still better than not having a T2 chip, but it used to be lots better, and now it's only a little bit better. And one can hope that this vulnerability was found in the A10, was found before Apple started building A10 chips, A10s into the T2s for their next batch of Macs coming. Well, we don't. So Apple haven't said, but what we do know is that there's no, I mean, basically Apple burned the code into these T2s and they can't be rewritten because they're a security device. If you could do a firmware update on a T2, that would be a disaster because then <laughs> malware could take over the T2. So the T2 is unpatchable by design. Yeah. So Apple right, right. have the choice. They could update their code to remove the vulnerability and just make a new batch of T2s. And from this point forward, those T2s would not have the vulnerability. Or they could release a T3 that does 20 million cool extra features and doesn't have this vulnerability. Maybe it's based off an A12 or something. So right, they haven't right. said what they're going to do, but they're almost certainly going to do something. Okay. And the other wonderful irony is that the T1 is not vulnerable, so the T1 has now become more secure than the T2. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how old is the T1? When did, when did we get that? Trash can Mac, I think. And I don't know. Wait. No, the trash... None of the desktops have... Uh, anythings. I, I Only the, the laptops do. No, the Mac Pros have always had... The Mac Pro was the first place to have the T's. They just How didn't have you... Touch ID. They just had the T chip for managing the file encryption. Oh, oh okay. 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 So I'm pretty sure the T1 was only in the Mac Pro and then the T2 was when it came to the public. When regular, regular folk started okay. with a T2. Okay. As opposed to a T1. Um... So, yeah, I think we've pretty much covered everything that was important to say there. Another thing we haven't explicitly said is that you absolutely positively must have physical access. This is in no way, shape, size, or form even conceivably remotely exploitable. So that is good. So the advice is don't lose physical control of your machine. And that was always true until there was such a thing as the T2, and it's now true again. Um, And hopefully the T3 will make it not true anymore. Don't lose One of the things control. I do is I, d- I don't keep anything that I would be terrified if it were to disappear uh, on my laptop. Yeah. and Out of my control. So like my taxes aren't on my laptop, for example. That's not a bad policy, actually. And I mean, that goes double if you're traveling to China or somewhere like that, right? You, you do need to take account of these things depending on your situation and who you are. Like that makes right. such a difference in all of this because this is not straightforward. This takes effort to exploit someone in this way. So you need to be valuable enough to someone for it to be worth the effort, either financially or philosophically, right? That they hate what you're doing so much that you're worth the effort. So right, maybe right. you're a high-level CEO, it's industrial espionage. Maybe you're some sort of activist and you're making powerful people cranky. But you need to be on someone's radar with sufficient resources for this to be an issue for you, which is why I think that for regular folk, the big thing is the activation lock. If someone steals their Mac that 
it used to be really pleasing that they had a useless brick. Mm-hmm. I, I find that strangely pleasing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I still don't have it, but neither do you. <laughs> <laughs> and that's still true. That's Well, no, because they can bypass activation locks. So now I don't have it, but they can have it. What was it they couldn't have? They can't get my data because they can't. Oh, they can't get your data. But they can okay, have but my they can Mac. Scrape it, and they they do have an expensive Mac. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and one oh. last subtlety, which almost sounds like a complete savior, but unfortunately it isn't. So one of the features of the check rain jailbreak is it doesn't survive a reboot. So if you jailbreak your iPhone, you have to tether it every time you boot your iPhone. Mm-hmm. And so you great. The same is true with the T two chip. So this flaw isn't all that serious because every time the T2 chip reboots, the malware is gone. Unfortunately, the T2 doesn't reboot. The T2 is always running. Even when your Mac is powered off, your T2 is running. Unless really? You, yes, because its job is to supervise everything. It's managing your battery. It's waking your Mac up periodically to do that power nap thing. It's huh. always there as lo- until you're... You completely lose battery. That thing is not rebooted. Huh, that's interesting. It's very interesting and kind of annoying because if it rebooted often, <laughs> then this wouldn't be as dangerous as it is. If you do a complete reset of all of your firmware, one of the steps in that process is rebooting the T2. So the T2 can't be rewritten, but the process of rewriting all your firmware will reset the T2 and make it reboot itself. So there's a link in the show notes to some very scary instructions from Apple to basically do a complete rewrite of all of your firmware. Jeez. Yeah, so you'd want to be fairly certain you needed to before you went down that route. Yikes. Um, lots of stories linked in the show notes with the details of this. What I want to draw particular attention to is that Ken Ray managed to interview Patrick Wardle, who is my one of my favorite Mac uh, security researchers. And so mm. in Checklist episode 202, they talk about the T2 uh, in great detail. So that was a very good episode. Oh, cool. Yeah, Ken's doing a good job with that. He, yeah, that's After four you recommended plugs. it last week, I, I listened to the two you suggested, and then I just kept listening to more. Yeah, it's great fun, actually, to go back through his back archives. All the stuff that isn't about news is really good fun. There are ever, a lot of evergreens in there. Cool. Even, even some of the news is fun a few months old. Uh, <laughs> moving on to notable news, DuckDuckGo have released a privacy-friendly driving and walking directions service based around Apple Maps. So if you want to get directions without going to Google Maps, you now have another choice. DuckDuckGo. Wait a minute. So DuckDuckGo Maps, but it's Apple Maps? Correct. So DuckDuckGo do directions powered by Apple Maps. Oh, that's cool. It is cool. And if you live in the United States of America, it is definitely notable news that the IRS are being investigated for using location data without a warrant. It's not good news, but it's notable. What would the IRS be using location data for? I'm assuming to try track people down and maybe track you down for uh for, for audits bills yeah yeah like you didn't pay up yeah so hmm. anyway uh, the, the investigation is ongoing vice have the news so if that interests you there's a link in show notes uh, nice tip um eight tips to tighten up your your work from home network is the title from naked security but that's a terrible title whoever was the editor Obviously, the guy you, or the person, I mean, let's not jump to conclusions. Paul Duckett, no, okay, it was a guy, but one shouldn't jump to conclusions. Uh, Paul obviously wrote the article and someone else obviously wrote the headline because it's not eight, it's not eight uh, tips. It's actually eight questions to ask yourself. 
So do I actually need this device online? Do I know how to update it? Do I know how to configure it? Have I changed any risky default settings? How much am I sharing? Can I divide and conquer my network? So that's our IoT network being recommended there. Mm-hmm. So basically, it's it's an interesting way of questioning your how you've set up your network if you're now in a work from home situation. So there are good questions to ask yourself. So it's actually it's, it's an interesting article, and I definitely recommend people have a read if they're interested in maybe upping their security game a little bit. Um, the next story, I wasn't sure where to put it. But I wanted to mention it because it has the word Excel in the headline. And if you haven't heard about this story, then... It's possible a few listeners have sent this to me. Possibly. I thought that might have happened all right. So I've put it under excellent explainers because the Guardian newspaper in the UK explained why Excel is not the best format for the database of all your COVID tests for the whole nation. Because... to be Well, go ahead and explain it. But it's not just just because it was Excel. That that statement is probably also true. That is also, I mean, the problem would have existed <laughs> if they'd used XLSX instead of the e, e oldie Excel ninety seven format. Would not have existed, right? Well, no, no, the problem would have existed at a higher, at a, a few months from now, when the data okay. file got even bigger. <laughs> well, you should go ahead and say what happened, cause, in case people don't know. Yeah, so all of the labs around England send their test results to Central Health England. The, the COVID test results. These COVID test about. results. And they're supposed to collate them to create the national figures for England so that they can track the disease. And so all of these different labs send them in Excel files. And each individual Excel file from each individual lab is not too big. And in fact, many of the labs send CSV files, which can be infinitely large. Health England decided to aggregate all of these spreadsheets into an Excel file, a single Excel file, and they didn't notice that they were truncating thousands of rows of data because the file had grown bigger than the XLS format they were using can support. Now, if they'd used XLSX, they would have got away with it for longer. But at the end of the day, they will run out of possible rows in an Excel file and a CSV file that wouldn't have happened with. And at the end of the day, why isn't this in a bloody database? This is data. Yeah, because people know Excel. Let's see, it says, well, CSV uh, files can be any size. Microsoft Excel files can only be 1,048,576 rows long. Or in older versions... uh, a mere 65,536. So it would have taken them quite a while to get there. Well, with exponential growth, I guess maybe not. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, there is but that. But for a while, everyone was really optimistic because the numbers in the UK had plateaued. Oh. but they, hadn't. they had. They hadn't plateaued. They had been very artificially truncated. So the revised oh, figures terrible. was like, oh, sugar, the exponential growth continued. So they missed 15,841 positive test uh, results. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. So be careful what you use Excel for. It is is a superb reporting tool. It is not the canonical Mm. place to store your data. That's what databases are for. It's in the name. Uh, The next section we have is interesting insights. So these are high quality opinion and editorial content that I recommend. So the first one is a very interesting article by Wired. Ad tech could be the next internet bubble, which is an interesting Hmm. headline. The piece starts by explaining all of the reasons that 
targeted ads are not all they're cooked up to be. The industry has convinced itself that stealing our privacy is worth it because it makes ads really valuable. The truth is that's not actually true. And at the moment, everyone has run off the cliff, like in a cartoon, and no one has looked down. The ad industry is built on a fiction. One of these days, someone's going to look down, and then everything's going to fall, and it's going to be a giant big collapse, a la the dot-com bust, where everyone thought a dot-com business was guaranteed to make money, which was, of course, fiction. And eventually someone looked down, realised that we'd run off a cliff years ago and Socks.com and all these things were completely useless and, hey presto, one bust. So his hypothesis is that we are on our way to another bust because in actual fact we're giving up our privacy for nothing. Meanwhile, in related news, Facebook... Are Wait, in- why is he saying that they're... Why is he saying it's going to be a bust? Does well, he because back Because someone's up? going to notice... So he he backs up the fact that the uh, the targeting is not effective, but everyone is pretending it is. And one of these days, someone's going to stop pretending, at which point you're going to have... It's like a housing bubble is based on the belief that houses will always go up in value. And some, one of the days, the fiction breaks and you have a collapse. And that's how bubbles work, right? I guess I'll have to read it, but mm. I wonder what he's basing the uh, targeted ads don't work. Uh, it actually backs it up quite well. So the article is a summary of a book. So the book has even more backing up. Um, but no, it definitely, it's here to be read. It's it's not one that I can, I mean, I have given you a short summary, but if you actually want to believe me, you're going to have to, you know, go read. But I, okay. I, I, I've said for a long time that it, you, you can target ads based on where the ad is rather than who's reading it. Because if I'm interested, if I'm reading an article on astronomy, I am interested in astronomy, so you can target me. If I'm reading an article on celebrities, I'm interested in that kind of stuff. You can target me. You don't have to follow me around the web and steal my privacy to target me. But anyway, that's that's a oh, different. Oh, I see. Okay, thesis. okay, yeah, yeah. No, I I see what you're saying. That's that's targeting you, but a different kind of targeting. Exactly. So that's been my thesis. That's my pet peeve. Is that you know you don't have to steal my privacy to target me. You can do it the other way around. Sell the ads against the content, like we've done in magazines forever. Right? The ads that appear in National Geographic appeal to National Geographic readers, not because the National Geographic magazine spies on you and phones home somehow, because you have self-selected to buy the National Geographic. So you are self-selecting, so you are yourself profiling yourself, so sell the ads that way. Anyway, that's my theory. That has nothing to do with this article. Um, But anyway. My theory is that the reason they're not effective is because they don't spy enough so if they would just be able to know what you've actually bought, then they would be effective. Because what happens now is you go look at a at a new uh, Nikon camera and Olympus or whatever, and then uh, you're going to see ads for that same thing forever, even though you already bought it. But how do you know that you wouldn't have bought it anyway? How many? How much credit are the ads getting for stuff you would have done anyway? Oh, I'm just saying they wouldn't waste money showing me ads for something I already bought if they just knew I'd already bought it. That's a fair point, because that is, that is one of the things with tracking. You, When I actually make my mind up and finally decide on which headphones I want, for the next six months, I am advertised headphones. Over and right. over. It's like, the one thing I don't care about right now, because I'm wearing really comfy headphones. <laughs> yes. And then from vice.com, six reasons you should delete WhatsApp. This is a classic Ooh. case of do as I say, not as I do. 
Uh, WhatsApp is the only part of Facebook that has managed to wheedle its way into my life. And it was basically the choice between keep up my boycott of Facebook or have a family during COVID times. I was like, uh, I, I, I just make I all hold my friends my nose use Telegram. Every time I open the app. <laughs> Nonetheless, it has actually made a huge difference to our family. So, grudging. Uh, there you go. Make them, make them use Telegram. I can't. I'm the tail. I am not succeeding in wagging the dog. <laughs> I am the least social of my entire family. The rest of them spend their entire lives poked into their phones and they're all WhatsApping with all of their other friends. So family gets tacked okay. on to WhatsApp because that's where they live. Oh, fuck. Yes. <laughs> and because it's only been a week, nothing came along to cleanse my palate, unfortunately. Um, so I'm afraid it's a very strange note to end on, but it's all I got. All right. Well, that that's still uh, we got all our uh, fill in two weeks. So I think it's uh, that's great. If there's not a ton of things went horribly wrong in a week, that's good news. That's a fair point. And on average, between the last bumper show and this show, on average, it's normal. (laughs) There you go. All right. Well, we'll talk to you in another couple of weeks, Bart. Indeed. Until then, remember to always stay patched so you stay secure. Well, I know I didn't do a lot of work this week. Bart did all of the heavy lifting and uh, with a big assist by by my friend Pat Dengler about the Soma Smart Blinds. I mean, hey, I wrote a tiny tip. I did a little bit of work. I painted the bathroom. Anyway, that's going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. I didn't do a pledge break this week. I just wasn't in the mood. But if you're in the mood to do a contribution and you want to do it through Patreon, go to podfeet.com slash Patreon. If you'd rather do a one-time contribution, that's podfeet.com slash PayPal. If you want to join our Facebook group, there's a bunch of anti-Facebook stuff going on in the live chat room, but a lot of people still love Facebook, podfeet.com slash Facebook. If you would prefer to be in an environment not run by Mark Zuckerberg, you might want to check out our Slack community at podfeet.com slash Slack. I got to say, a lot of people joined after I explained what was so great about Slack last week. That again is podfeet.com slash Slack. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. And sometimes you get to see a lot of sausage grinding. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.